Computer, initialize Holosuite. Another episode of The Fire Caves, a Star Trek Deep Space Nine podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Perry. And I'm your host, David. Tonight we're talking about Season 2, Episode 18, Profit and Loss. Before we continue, you can find us on Twitter, Facebook, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts as The Fire Caves, a Star Trek Deep Space Nine podcast. That's absolutely right. And tonight, before we get started, I just wanted to take a moment to pass our deepest condolences and sympathies to the victims of Uvalde, the shooting that was here in Texas uh, just a couple weeks ago. Um, You know, there were 19 uh, kids that were shot. There were two adults as well, making it a a total of 21 individuals who were um, shot or injured during this whole terrible tragedy. And it's just something that while it happens all too often that doesn't make it any less tragic and we just wanted to say once again that our um thoughts and prayers are with those families who were uh afflicted so 100 percent, yeah yeah we're in so for those who are listening we're in austin perry and i and so uh you know uvalde is apparently 80 miles west of san antonio which is about an hour away from austin so it's a little local for us on a certain level um so yeah definitely um we I, a small group I'm in at church. We definitely prayed that night uh, for the families. Uh, so we, when people like myself say thoughts and prayers, like that, that means something. Uh, and so uh, we take that seriously. And um, yeah, those 21 people who died. Uh, I don't know if you've also heard Perry, but the one of the husbands of one of the women who died also had a heart attack a few days later after her memorial service, and he also passed away. So that family of four kids now has lost both their parents in two days. So, yeah, very sad situation out there. Um, yeah, if anyone can, uh, you know, thoughts and prayers. There's another number of uh, uh, send, give, send, go and and um, other donation type sites for yeah. those families and everyone there. Um, I don't have their links or exact suggestions for how to get a hold of those at the moment. But um, if anyone is interested, you can donate to those families and to those to the this, this community. Yeah. Um, which really could use it right now. Yeah, if you go to, if you Google it, if you Google the Uvalde shooting, there's several links to a lot of those different organizations and um, uh, d- donation areas where it, can, it shows you how to make donations, or if you, and even if it's just donating time to kind of help them go down there and just kind of handle what's going on. Um, of course, you can do that. Now, we, we do, as we've said multiple times, try to keep this show as free of political commentary as possible. Um, I really don't feel like this is something that, you know, politics is uh, is a part of. This was just definitely a, a tragedy, and right. I felt like it needed to be um, uh, acknowledged, unfortunately. And, yeah. I mean, I'm... I'm not a churchgoer, um, but I am a parent, and I know that, you know, even those last few days of the school year with all this stuff going on, everybody was very, very, you know, cognizant of what was going on and the fear of, you know, the potential of it being your kid's school next. You know, all that was weighing on 
a lot of parents, not just myself. And so, um, you know, first time ever really kind of going through that from that side of it, you know, and um, yeah, that's why it's just been, it's been on my mind a lot. I've talked a lot about it with friends, family, you know, um, and I don't know what comes next. I don't know how they move past this or anything like that. But if you are a person who wants to give, who wants to help them, please do so. Please Google uh, Uvalde, Texas and contact any of those organizations and donate whatever that is that you feel is appropriate. I'm sure all of those families would appreciate it. I'm sure all the survivors would appreciate it. Those children especially would appreciate it. So if you feel moved to do so, please do so. Do not hold back um, at all. Right. Okay. Um, so other than that, that, that's all we really want to say there. Just want to move on from there. Um, and again, just keeping those people in our in our thoughts, in our hearts, in our prayers as we as they try to move forward with their lives. Hundred percent. So, yes, we are here to talk about Star Trek: Deep Space Nine. We are talking about the episode "Profit and Loss," and this was a unique episode yes. in my opinion um gave us different sides of characters that we kind of felt like to a certain degree we already knew yeah and uh it's a lot very interesting stuff with this storyline and we have actually a 90 segment that comes out of this one but before we get to that let's do our episode summary let's Dave, do it do you want to get to it uh, is it my turn? Is it? It is your turn. Okay. I, I think I've done the last. Th- yeah. All right. Let's do it then. All right. So this episode is called Profit and Loss. Uh, we open up the episode immediately on in ops, and we see that a damaged Cardassian ship is uh, moving toward Deep Space Nine. So Commander Cisco commands that the team uh, use the tractor beam to get the ship uh on to the station without you know hitting the station because the all of their functions are damaged and he has chief o'brien go to the ship and start working on it the people that come off the ship are three cardassians including a woman who claims claims to be a professor named natima and her and her two students raquelin and hoag um as she passes through the promenade cork sees her and is immediately excited. He runs up to her and says, Oh my goodness, uh, Nat- Natima, you're back. This is the happiest day of my life. And she slaps him across the face and says she never wants to see him again. Um, Odo, who is there investigating a missing cloaking device and believes that Cork has it, sees all this. And at the same time, Garrick, who is having a conversation with Bashir in the in Cork's bar, also, well, a little later on, he sees her as well. Um, so we and we come to know that Cork and Natima, when he meets up with her a little later, he follows her, were once lovers during the Cardassian occupation. She used to work for the Cardassian government in their information service. And for a one-month time frame, they had a quick, hot, romantic fling but she accuses him of abusing their relationship and betraying her when he stole some money from her, which, of course, he did and admits to. But he says that he loves her, has always loved her, even seven years later, is still passionately in love with her and wants her to stay on the station with him. But we come to learn that uh, the reason their ship was damaged was because these three Cardassians were escaping from the Cardassian military, the three of them are in the Cardassian underground, 
and have instigated some dissident movements. They are accused of being terrorists by the military of Cardassia, but they claim that they are the future of the Cardassian government and fu- future of the of the state, uh, that the military is losing power and that uh, they are now rebels and fugitives uh, being chased by the military. Uh, so like I said, Garrick did see uh, Natima, and so uh, Quark goes to him and says he wants to buy a dress, and they have a very tense, full of, you know, innuendos. innuendos. Yeah, that's a great word. Uh, they they talk in, in, in kind of past each other a little bit. Uh, so, for example, Quark wants this dress he sees, and Garrick says that it'd be bad for him to uh, be, re- in, you know, to, to be near someone who's in bad fashion. And he rips the dress in front of Cork, uh, telling him basically stay away from the Tima. Cork, um, of course, truly is infatuated with this woman and still says he wants to buy it from Garrick. Um, but meanwhile, a Cardassian warship shows up, and it does not hail the station. It, it gets ready to fire on the station, and Cisco is unhappy. But Garrick walks in and says he has a message from the Cardassian High Command, or Central Command, that is. Mm-hmm. They want the three, uh, the, actually the two, the two students. They want the two students claiming that they are terrorists. And Cisco says, I will respond in kind to any use of force against the station to come get these two. Um, Garrick just says he's the messenger, so he will uh, just, you know, relay the message back. Um, Meanwhile, Natima comes to Quark and, uh, or I'm sorry, Quark goes to the two students, Hogue and Raquelin, and tells them he has a cloaking device, and he will give them this cloaking device, the same one that Odo was investigating earlier in the episode, if they get Natima to agree to stay on the station. Natima goes to Quark to get the cloaking device a little later on in his quarters, and um, she shoots him when he won't give him the device. Uh, She shoots him with a phaser. She doesn't kill him, but hurts him. And in the passion of oh goodness quark are you hurt she admits that she truly does love quark that he's missed her all this time that all of her claims of hating him and not loving him anymore were lies and they kiss passionately and odo walks in and says that uh she's under arrest and it's revealed that the bajoran provincial government has agreed to give back the three cardassians to the cardassian central command in exchange for political prisoners from cardassia which I'm going to have to go and mention right now. I thought all Bajoran prisoners were supposed to have been released from what happened at the beginning of this season, so turns out the Cardassians still have some more Bajoran prisoners, it would seem, but we'll get to that later. Because of course they do. Yeah, of course they do. <laughs> so, now the three of them are in jail. They are jailed by Odo, and Sisko comes to them and says, I, this is not what I want to do, but I have to obey the Bajoran government because they're the ones who own the station. Um, so... Uh, Garrick, no, Garrick, yeah, Garrick, he is told by another of the Cardassians who comes on the station, Gull Toran, who they seem to have a very animus relationship, that he is supposed to assassinate the three of them instead of letting them get back on this station to return to Bajor. They want them assassinated quietly, or at least off the planet, so that they can't become 
you know, martyrs, or at least away from the station, they'll be easily forgotten. So Garrick agrees, and when Quark goes with uh, Natima and the others to this the ship, uh, he has... Oh, I'm sorry, he goes to Odo, and he gets Odo to agree to release the three Cardassians, because... Odo's looked it up their files. They haven't committed terrorism. Whatever they're accused of is obviously bunk. So Odo agrees to let them go. Quark wants him to let them go because he desperately loves Tatima. He's willing to give up the bar and maybe give up information on his brother Nog about what criminal activity he's involved in in order to get Odo to agree. But Odo says, I'm, I'm going to release them myself because I don't agree with what's going on. Um... Quark takes the three of them to their sh their ship where he's already installed the cloaking device and Garrick is there and he holds them at gunpoint and he says, um, you know, it, it gets tiresome living in exile. So I'm here to earn myself uh, back into the good graces of the high command. But before he's able to do anything, Gul Turan shows up to say that he was there to make sure that Garrick did his job. But Garrick was kind of monologuing a bit. So uh, he threatens to shoot everyone and says that Garrick had no real opportunity of getting back in the good graces. He truly is exiled. And so Tor uh, Garrick shoots Torian and uh, kills him, and he disappears into a puff of light and says to the three, uh, you can leave. Uh, and before Natima leaves, she and Quark talk all intimately one more time. They kiss. She says that she's going to go with the two of her students, even though uh, she had agreed to stay with Quark. It's not his fight, so she's going to leave some of her love and hope back here on the station. Uh, and uh, let he lets her go, and that's basically the end of the episode. So yeah, it kind of ends on a kind of a kind of quickly. The, all the ramifications of this choice aren't felt least not yet i don't know if we're going to follow up yeah. on this episode next time or anything but no follow-up on odo letting people go on yeah. the cardassians having escaped political prisoners and one of their people being killed on the station and there's all kinds of ramifications for the end of this episode that i feel we need to address but i have a feeling are not going to be addressed so yeah you know there there's a lot of that i mean i think they were trying to highlight more the bittersweet ending but there's so many loose ends that they give us here that just if you really think about it shouldn't sit well with you yeah like again you know um yeah even though gold Turan beamed over to the station i mean he obviously didn't beam back and his ship was still there do you think no one was going to be like well what happened to him we know we transported him over and now he's just gone right like what are we what are we to expect he's just this man is just gone our leader our captain is gone if this was, if the roles were reversed and this was a, you know, a Starfleet crew and, you know, like, let's say Picard went missing, he beamed over <laughs> to an alien space station and suddenly they were like, nope, we don't know who you're talking about. Whoa. There's no way the Enterprise would have left without doing a thorough investigation to figure out where Picard went. You say that there was an episode where that exactly happened. Uh, there was an episode where a an ambassador Vulcan was uh, supposed to go visit with some Romulans if you remember, and yes. the, and something happens. I forget if it's this. Like On the, the transporter, yeah, it blows it was, up. They made it look like a transporter accident, like she died, and right. then it turned out that she was actually a double agent. Exactly. But even then, well, they didn't realize then. till the end of the episode because they investigated and they investigated and they investigated, 
and they realized there was something wrong with this she had yes. died situation and they the 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 Romulans were forced to reveal the truth because uh they were starting to suspect that they had kidnapped their the ambassador yes. and they were like hey you know, we think you actually kidnapped just... her, and they showed, no, we didn't kidnap her. She's been one of us all along. We were hoping to hold this information from you, but we're going to show her the show the truth so that you know that um, uh, you don't have to get into war with us. It was an interesting episode. That was a good yeah. one, if I remember correctly. It, she was basically a, a long-term better, a long-term Romulan spy on the fe- yes. for the Federation, or on the Federation. And, yeah, but even then, that still proves my point, because they investigated and investigated, and right. they realized that nothing was quite adding up here the way that it should, and that caused uh, you know Picard to do the whole turnaround and go back, because he was like, no, now we think that you've kidnapped her. She didn't die. You kidnapped her, and we want her back. And they were like, we didn't kidnap anybody. You were returning our soldier to us so it's like, kind of right. like a ha 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 we got one over on you federation right. types that's what that was but even right. still they did not stop investigating which is what i'm saying the cardassians for what we can tell here just kind of gave up like there's no ramifications no one started to attack the station hey our our goal our leader our, the goal is an equivalent of a captain transported over to your ship and now y'all are telling me y'all don't know where he is Right. No, we're not leaving until we find our missing officer. That's how this would have played out if it was a Federation crew with an alien ship. Right. Um, also, yeah, the Cisco openly states that this is, even though it's run by the Federation, it is a it is a Bajoran owned station, and that they must they are subject to the same rules and politics as the Bajoran from the Bajoran government. So right. the Bajoran government has made an agreement with the Cardassian government to do this prisoner exchange. And right. Odo takes it upon himself in the service of greater justice to help them escape. No ramifications. No one comes banging on Cisco's door. How dare you let this shapeshifter let these people go? Like, that never happens. Right. It's just, exactly. we're just supposed to accept that because of the greater morality of the situation, it's just, okay, somehow. Right. Right now, you could make the argument that this was pretty early, still pretty early on in the provi- the Bajoran provisional government kind of having control of itself, and there's probably a lot of fires they're putting out down on the planet below as well, and right. there and and so who cares if we don't get if these if these Cardassians escaped somehow, right. but. If the whole thing was about these Cardassians still holding on to Bajoran prisoners, you would think they'd have a bit more interest in getting their people back than what <laughs> we're kind of led to believe right. actually happened. Um, yeah, well, I, that's why I feel like this episode it would be great as a two-parter, quite yeah. frankly. I know we've talked once about that again, a lot lately. Yeah, once again, DS9 giving us something that should have been a two-parter where we right. got to hear some of these things totally metered out. Right. And it would be perfect for it because... I mean, the whole idea of these – I think I was recently saying that we haven't seen any civilian Cardassians. And then, like, literally, like, the episode after I say that, boom, here we are. Mm-hmm. Um, I must probably two or three episodes ago. But anyway, um, which is so important because if the Cardassian government, as uh, – in the conversation Cisco has with Garrick, Cisco makes the point that the uh, Cardassian military and the Cardassian government are our two separate entities and Garrick <laughs> pretends to not understand. Right. Um, yeah, it, it, this, this episode gives us a chance to examine, okay, what does the, Car- the Cardassian 
uh, home world. What is the politics on their station? On, I'm sorry, on their on their home world. Uh, in fact, when uh, when they first show up and they're on the in ops, they uh, uh, Natima says that we don't like to talk politics. You know, our politics are very private to us. We don't discuss them, especially with Bajorans. Um, right. So it's kind of a dig there, but uh, it actually is important for us to know what's going on. You know, like as we recently talked about. You know, if the whole reason that the Federation is here on Deep Space Nine, which used to be a Cardassian military station, is because the Bajorans, I'm sorry, the Cardassians didn't have the resources to hold the Bajoran homeworld, then what other happen. what other things are going on? Yeah, yeah, so I've always found that very interesting because if you if you track the overall storyline of the Cardassians, this once again kind of lets us know that it wasn't so much the Bajorans that won the occupation so much as it was the Cardassians no longer being able to sustain it and giving up. Because if you remember, all the way back in Next Generation, we know that there was at least one Federation Cardassian war. We know that that happened for sure. Uh, Captain Maxwell, O'Brien serving on his ship, Maxwell going rogue, all of that. We know that that happened. Okay? The Mm -hmm. next thing that we also know that happened is we have the whole... establishing of the demilitarized zone and the giving up of certain colonies on both sides of the Federation and the Cardassians, which leads eventually to the formation of the Maquis. Again, right. this brings in Ro Laren, of course, and her struggle for Bajoran independence and being a part of the Maquis and so forth. So, also from, um, from Next Generation, we know when Picard was later held prisoner and tortured, uh-huh. you know, the infamous There Are Four Lights. Yeah. The the Cardassian that was torturing him tells him a story of how the Cardassian people used to be very cultural and worldly and they were artisans and everything else, but the people started to starve and there was famine and there was disease and there was all these terrible things that happened until finally the military took over. Like the people just had enough. They couldn't do anything else about it. Civilian governments were dissolved. The military took over. The the um, the Cardassian Central Command was established, and they took over feeding and clothing the people and everything else. And it's like, and what a joyous time that kids went to, you know, kids were now in school, in institutions. They were clothed and taken care of. No one was being beaten up for eggs or whatever, right? And Picard makes a statement. He's like, yeah, their bellies were full, but their souls were empty. You traded one bad thing for another. Then, of course, right. we come to Bajor. And we see this horrible exploitation of this entire planet and their people and their right. resources for 50 years. And yes, they had their rebe- their rebellion movements and everything else that were going on. But again, it doesn't seem like that was overall very effective. And then finally, after 50 years of just pillaging this planet, they suddenly decided to pull out. And even then, there's like this toss-up as to who you talk to as to whether or not it was a mistake or not to leave. And they don't give up all of their Bajoran prisoners. We see later on, you know, Lee Nollis, him him being, you know, held captive on Cardassia 4 for forever with a bunch of other Cardassians or a bunch of other Bajorans. We know that they still did a lot of very heinous things, even well after the occupation ended. So it seems like the story is really that there was a time when they were great people. Then there was famine, disease, a bunch of terrible things that befell the Cardassian home planet. 
Right. They tried to rebuild from this, and while they were stable for a little while, that stable the stability came at the price of outward expansion. They needed to grow their empire. So from the home planet, they moved out to the other planets in the system, establishing bases on like Cardassia 4, Cardassia 5. We know there are multiple planets in the system that are also um, able to sustain life. They right. eventually moved into the neighboring systems where they encountered the Bajorans. They find a rich, thriving ecosphere uh, ecosystem with a a uh, population full of spiritual people who seem like they could be easily subjugated, and they were. They took what they could from them, but even then it became just too much, too much infighting. They had to pull back, pull in their resources, and they had to let go of certain territories. We right. see that again with the giving up of Bajor, the establishment of the demilitarized zone. They just can't really seem to afford to hold on to the empire that they've built. And they yes. they lost to the Federation. They've lost so many other things. And they're just trying to hold on for as long as they can. Okay? So just so then along comes people like Natima and her her students, who are probably a part of a newer generation, who all they've really seen is the constant fighting back and forth, the constant losses, and also seeing a very ineffective military command. And they're right. taking this as their t- uh, um, their chance to establish the civilian dissident movement. And this is the first time that we really hear that mentioned full on was in this episode. And Raquel and Hogue seem to be like the front leaders of this growing movement. Right. Okay. So where the picture that they're painting really of the Cardassians is they're they're not stable. They're not stable at all, and they are grasping at straws to try to maintain power, especially the military. And you've got these. Are they exiled, whatever, secret agent, whatever they could be, like Garrick, who still are loyal to the military state and who are doing things to kind of keep that information in-house, not letting the word get out that there's this power struggle going right. on. And we see this with Garrick when he downplays to Cisco the importance of Raquel and Hogan. He's like, you know... We just want them back because, you know, they're a little, you know, flighty. They're a little flaky. That's kind of how he paints them. Like, they're not that dangerous, but we still want them back nonetheless. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's a yeah. lot. It is a lot. But you, <laughs> I, I mean, it's one of those, it's a lot. But if you've been paying attention to the storylines that they've been presenting, at least in the buildup of the Cardassians, you can kind of see the pattern here is that these are people who really just... They really enjoy power. They're not used to not having power. And the fact that the Bajoran people, it's kind of like, it's a black mark on their record, but not in the way that we would think. It's a black mark because they failed to maintain that control. They want that control back desperately. And that's why they keep coming back to the station and keep doing things to mess with the Bajorans and the Federation relationship. is because they want that back. Well, you know, it's interesting you say all that because as you were saying that, I was thinking, you know, one thing I always complain about with stories, as I've said before, like, you know, planets are sometimes the ice planet Hoth, the the desert planet Dune, like the idea that certain areas are geographically the same all over. Uh, and then the people, the, 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 the race, the alien races are all defined by one specific feature. Like the, the Ferengi mm-hmm. are just greedy for money. But the Cardassians have been presented, and in that Picard episode where he's being tortured, as we've talked about before, the Cardassians are designed to be presented as as close to human beings in terms of being like a multifaceted, mm-hmm. they're, they're, they're like the dark version of us, 
than any other race is in the entire can in the, all the Star Trek races I've seen at least. Like yeah, I would agree whole, to that. I would yeah, agree to that. The idea, like, so if we're saying, as you just pointed out, like they have a desire for power, it's like they're the dark version of the Federation of humanity. They are the you know the 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 evil mirror version of what could have happened to humanity in the sense that you know if we also had our military running things and they therefore promoted all of the uh, the aggressive people power hungry people into positions of authority and they corrupt and, they, and their military got corrupted in that way like would we be so different i think the argument of course is no like the the federation exists as i think the whole point q is making is you know we're we're terrible you know the humans are are not any good you know especially in the first episode of tng um you know we're doing the test or testing humanity um but the idea is that humanity has you know somehow has, has progressed as a society beyond this darker aggressive military focused uh or uh, uh culture and yeah um it's it is interesting to watch the Cardassian story unfold across TNG and Deep Space Nine because it is nuanced. There is mm-hmm. there is stuff going on, and it's it's great to see this chapter in particular really this this episode open up new new storytelling uh, for us, and to know that yeah, it's you know it's interesting because there's also that TNG episode where we uh, it's Ambassador Spock is on the Romulan planet trying to help build up a. Uh, yeah, a, a, a rebellion a, a, there a too. Vulcan, a kind of a Vulcan Romulan dissident movement on the right. Romulus home world. Yes, he was doing kind of the same. And it turns out that the, the his contact in the Romulan government is also evil. It's like he's he a, was also he's a double agent. He was yeah. spying the whole time. It's like the Romulans. Like the, if, if there's anything Romulans do, it's they're double agents and they're yeah. playing two. They're playing you know plots within plots and games within games. And it's like you'll never get. You'll never turn the the Romulan people good because they're they are just utterly about the Romulan culture. Yeah. And then here come the Cardassians, and they aren't so kind of one one dimensional in that sense. Like there is, we can see that you know if we could really get in there and look into the Cardassian culture and society, there would be a lot there to to examine. And I'm, yeah, I mean we're only in season two, so I mean I imagine there's a lot of chances we'll get to really examine more. Yeah. And you're and you're absolutely right. I mean, as as far as other alien races are presented in Star Trek, a lot of them, you know, kind of started off as you know the big bad of the week. You know, they were the enemy of the week. So the the thought of developing them further didn't really make a whole lot of sense. You right. know, even all the way back in the '60s, when you know the big alien enemy for them were were the Klingons and as many episodes as the Klingons were featured in um, along with a a host of other aliens that we see you know they never really got that development beyond being these very warrior you know savage people right Uh, they tried briefly a few times but it never really went anywhere because again it was it was the 60s they just let's just say there were limitations okay we're not gonna we don't need to break it down any further than that there were limitations um, now in the, with next generation, they did try to be a little bit more nuanced with it and everything else, but it's only really when we get to deep space nine and we see recurring characters and recurring races that right. they do tend to develop them more. And this has been for 
all of the races that we've seen. Because think about it. We've seen Ferengi and Klingons and, and Romulans and Cardassians. All, we've seen all of them in the original series. and Well, not the original series for all of them, but at least in Next Generation, we've seen them. And there was some development there. But it wasn't until we get to Deep Space Nine that we see Klingons who are chefs and who sing opera. Right. You know, we see a Ferengi who is not this very aggressive, misogynistic, you know, crazed character that we see a couple of times on Next Generation. He's right. a bartender, and, and I'm not saying that he's not, you know, he's he certainly doesn't have a heart of gold, but right. he does have certain redeemable qualities about him that we have never seen evidence right. in another Ferengi until Quark. Okay. Well, and there's also the TNG Frankie in that one episode where he's a scientist that helps them, or he dies in the episode, but helps them figure out something about, I think it was a, like a black hole or something like that. But anyway, keep going, yeah. keep going. Yeah, but so, I mean, again, my, my whole point is it was very rare until we get to Deep Space Nine, and we see these aliens that we had seen countless times, that suddenly we're seeing them in a different light. They're doing things, they're still kind of, uh, I guess, aggressive in certain aspects, but they are... You know, certainly different, and I think the development of the Cardassian people to be, as you said, more of a foil for humanity here, showing a, a certain darker twist. That if we had just strayed a little bit from the path that led to the Federation, if we had strayed just a little bit, we wouldn't be. The, it wouldn't have been the Federation and Starfleet. It would have been the whatever military command. Right, you know, we would have been a much more militaristic, militaristically minded group setting out. Right, and instead of exploring space, it would have been looking to conquer space, to use, to find resources, to exploit, and so forth. So, um, yeah, very interesting the way they set up that parallel, and they keep giving us more to show that it's also not just one sided. Not everybody involved in the Cardassian, on the Cardassian side. Uh -huh. are all military-minded. We've got teachers, we've got students, we've got, you know, bartenders, philosophers. We've got all these people, you know, that just are, are different. Right. Think differently. And we never would have got that if this had been on any other show. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, I think, I think Deep Space Nine is, is able to give us some deeper storytelling sometimes. Cause yes. Again, because the Enterprise just jetting around from, from one adventure to the next means yeah. they don't have to always ex um, examine the longer term, you know, consequences of their choices and actions. While deep space nine is there and it's got to sit on all of them and, and deal with them as they come. So, right. So now before we get into more about this particular story and the, the romance that used to be with Quark and Natima, I uh, did want to have our nineties corner. Which definitely ties into this episode. The 90s. So, yes. <laughs> so take yourselves back to 1994 when tie-dyes and baggy pants were all the rage and weird <laughs> sunglasses as well. It just so happens that during the production of this episode, while they were attempting to film it, there was an earthquake. Really? A massive uh, 6.7 magnitude earthquake in California, which, forgive the pun, really shook things up. And the the crazy thing about the tie-in to this episode is that while they were doing the production and this episode and the, and the earthquake happened, our cast was in the middle of filming and getting ready to, you know, go out and do their scenes and everything else. So when the earthquake shook and things just 
went from calm to complete pandemonium in the space of a few seconds. Everybody did what they naturally do after an earthquake passes, and that's you attempt to contact friends, family, and so forth. Are you okay doing all those texts and everything like that, right? Well, there were certain actors who could not get a hold of their family members, so they all jumped in their cars and raced home trying to get to their family members. But they forgot to take off their costumes. (laughs) So while they were driving home... There were Ferengi, Cardassians, various other hodgepodge aliens, whatever, sitting behind the wheels of their various cars, cruising through the streets, frantically trying to get to their family members. Um, Armin Shimmerman tells a story about how he uh, frightened a lot of people jumping out of his car in his neighborhood in full quark costumage. <laughs> yeah, I can attempting, imagine that attempting attempting the earthquake was an alien invasion. <laughs> right. So could you, I, I just, could you imagine, like, you, first there's an earthquake, and then all of a sudden you're surrounded by aliens, frantically sprinting through the streets to get to vehicles. <laughs> you you might have thought it was an alien invasion, that there's an earthquake, and that the maybe the maybe the earth just opened up, and a bunch of demons have spilled right. forward from the crack and are moving through the uh, station. And are moving through the world, you know. So um, a lot yeah, of a uh-huh. lot of craziness that went on with that. And I mean, there were there was of course the initial um, earthquake, and then there were a couple of different aftershocks. The whole thing, if you count from initial earthquake to final aftershock, was about eleven hours of oh, of terror goodness. of things happened. It was the largest. Um, one of the largest natural disasters to date at that time, and it still makes it one of the uh, costliest natural disasters in U.S. history. Um, Sadly, there were 57 people who did lose their lives and thousands more that were injured. So um, not trying to make light of that situation at all, just saying this is what happened literally the very week this episode was being filmed and and set to be released was this craziness of of a natural disaster that came out there. Gotcha. Yikes. Man, I know California is, uh, you know, it's there on the San Andreas, so I imagine that happens more often than people there want to admit, but yeah. Yeah, I remember when I lived in California, my first year living in California, I was working at a um, restaurant, and I had gotten there real early in the morning, around like 5 or 6 in the morning, and there was an earthquake. But it was mild, and my experience with earthquakes was absolutely zero. Yeah. And it was... I remember standing in the kitchen and like I felt the roll through the ground and watched just everything around me like jumped up like just real quick jumped in the air and sat back down and it was and it was over and there were no aftershocks there was nothing <laughs> but it was to the point where I couldn't like for a while I thought I had imagined it because everything popped up and came right back down in the same place. There was nothing like even slightly leaning or whatever. And I thought that I had made it up. Like I thought that my brain had somehow tricked me into yeah. thinking this. And then other people like came in that I worked with and no one mentioned it. And I didn't want to be the first one to mention it. Cause I thought right. I was losing my mind. And then finally I was like, Hey, did y'all feel the, was that an earthquake? And they were like, Oh yeah, it happens all the time. And I was like, Oh, thank God. <laughs> Like, cause I really thought that I was losing my mind. Right. Um, yeah. And I was, I was twenty one, twenty two then. Right. So you know, it's just, just one of those. I was very new to the area and inexperienced with the whole thing, and I didn't want want to seem like the, the, idiot yokel who didn't know <laughs> anything, you know. And I was just like, 
Yeah. Very timid to ask, which was funny coming from me, considering that I've, I don't feel like I've really ever been timid in my life. But <laughs> that was, that well, was hey, a moment. The earth's shaking. I think that would do it to anybody. <laughs> yeah. If there's ever a time to be timid, it's when, it's yeah. when that happens. Right. But that I was, have to say, there's a part of me that like, wants to experience an earthquake at least on the not in the like damages stuff kind of way yeah. as you just said it like there's a sudden something happens and it's just suddenly shocking and strange and weird and you know it's unique in its experience there's a part of me that would be interested in feeling that but yeah not oh, yeah. if there would be any damage or hurt or anything like that so yeah i mean from my own limited experience i can tell you like it's just it was so surreal like again i didn't believe that it had happened like i stood there experienced it and di- was already convincing myself that it didn't happen. Right. But I just couldn't get over it. I finally just had to ask someone, hey, did the did the whole world just shake? Right. Did I uh die marriages and they're like, oh no, it happens all the time. Yeah, that was this morning. I was like, oh. Thank God someone remember someone <laughs> confirmed this for me. Because I probably would have went home and been like just laying there. I don't know if the world shook or maybe I was high on some fumes I didn't know were existing in the area. Like <laughs> I could have I could have convinced myself of almost anything at that point. Yeah. But yeah, yeah. it's it is a <laughs> unique. I consider it one of the more uniquely terrifying moments of my life, just because of the uncertainty it instilled in me uh, after after right. it was over with. I just I just didn't know. Right. So. Yeah. Well, hey, I, now that we're talking about yeah. past stuff, I just really want to quickly mention. So I earlier in the in our talking, I mentioned that there was the episode where um, a Romulan. Uh, ambassador was pretending to be a Vulcan and that whole thing. I looked up the episode just to make sure I could say the name of it. It's called Data's Day, and that's, that's a the great same episode. And it's the same one that introduces Keiko, Keiko O'Brien, and or Keiko gets married to to Miles O'Brien in that yes. episode. She was um, Keiko. What was? Do you know her name? Ishikawa. She, ah, you cheated. This is what I have you it right it here. <laughs> you looked yeah, it yeah. up. But uh, yeah, as soon as I saw that, I was like, well, darn it! I have to mention that that was the episode where we saw her for the first time. Uh, that one aired for the first time in 1991, January 7th, 1991. And it's the 85th episode, and of 185 episodes, that means that it's kind of unique in that special sense. It's not quite halfway through TNG's run, um, but of the 185, it's it is the 85th. Um, but yeah, I just as soon as I saw that, I was like, it's also the same episode that introduces Data's pet cat Spot, Spot. as well. So and uh, it also introduces a very famous nickname for our lovely Doctor Crusher. Um, anyone know? The name? I'm gonna go ahead and spoil you. I have it in front of me right now. Of course, that's cheating. Yeah, no, that's cheating. Uh, But she is, of course, the dancing Dancing doctor. doctor. So yes, a lot of great things came out of that episode. Yes, that's a fantastic one. Yeah, yeah, it is. Watching Data and Doctor Crusher throw down on the tap dancing floor, which, by the way, for another little Easter egg for you, of course, the actor who is doing the dancing for. Data or Brent Spiner, and this obviously it's a stunt double, but that's actually Gates McFadden doing her own her own dance moves. There, she literally she really can <laughs> dance and tap and do all that stuff. That is her a hundred percent. So enjoy that when you watch that episode, knowing that our doctor uh, she can do it. She's got right. the legs, right? Yeah, uh, she's. I mean. Gates McFadden, I, I don't I don't doubt it at all. No. She's got she looks like she's got that type of skill. So Absolutely. But we're not here to talk about next generation. We're here to talk about Deep Space Nine. And I want right. to talk about 
Quark and Natima. The, yes. The love that got away. Okay. <laughs> so, and we know there were some extenuating circumstances to that, but how interesting was it that we get a a love story, which, you know, we don't necessarily see a whole lot of those yes. in Deep Space Nine, but we get it with these two heavily costumed aliens right. right well i just i just want to say you know we, we were talking about the episode shadow play recently where we did have major kira and um uh what's what's his name Vedic um, yeah him and we were like yeah they didn't really work so well for us but this one i'm like man they were I, great maybe yeah right <laughs> like, they were it's great. so bizarre but maybe <laughs> <laughs> but this just goes like it's just. I feel like it's acting level. Like I, I was just, about I, to say that Armin Shimmerman <laughs> kills it in this episode. Yes, yes he is fantastic. Going, Armin Shimmerman once again shows us why he is our favorite Ferengi. He is really, really uh, goes hard on this role, and yes. he sells it on being this kind of lovelorn guy who suddenly the love of his life has just walked back through the door, and right. he, despite the fact that she just backhanded him. He is the most excited that he's ever been. Um, right. I I loved it. I know that not everybody really likes seeing Quark this way or whatever, but I thought that it was a great, refreshing change from seeing him being so misogynistic, to say the least, when it comes <laughs> yeah. to women, to see him in this particular role. And, right. and also knowing that she was into it. Like, she totally tries to, like, be standoffish, but we see the moments of weakness on her part where she's, so tempted to kind of give in and then finally when she does and she admits that she's still in love with him and that she's always been in love with him and she she shot him but it was an accident and all this stuff like it was it was a great run for them i loved watching it i think that both armin sherman and mary crosby did a great job yes in uh these scenes in their scenes together and right. it really sold me on these two potentially being a couple Right, yeah, so when she first shows up, I mean, the first, a, a beautiful Cardassian woman, like, whoa, okay. I mean, with those, yeah. you know, ridged, hard The bits corrugated on them. ridges on the neck, and then she's, yeah. got the, she's got the revealing dress that's showing all of that, and... Yeah, and, but that's the hair, man, I love long hair, and she, uh, whenever you got a back shot, just like, it's yeah. all coiffed, and it's braid, and long, and... Folks, David is, like, just gotta say... Folks, David is understating it when he says long hair. <laughs> yeah. This woman shows up, and not only does she already have a lot of hair on top of her head and, like, pulled right. back in some very ornate bun design, but then there's, like, a whole other, like, foot of it yes. that's going all the way down her back. So I'm just like, Jesus. And, ag and again, it's all, like, braided. It's like, like, she's never got a haircut in her entire life. Like, right. that's the same hair she had when she was... A baby. <laughs> or or maybe not. Grown. We don't know how fast Cardassian hair grows, but I do know that right. she had a lot of hair. It was, right. She was definitely done up to be very different looking from the other Cardassians that we've seen. Even the, the female student that she has with her does not seem to share her aesthetic at all. They're not dressed the same. Their hair is certainly not styled the same. They look very different. Right. Um, so I found that very interesting. But it worked right. for Natima Lang. She looked almost ethereal to it in a sense. Like she was always right. in that kind of white get up there, um, making her stand apart from the bleakness of everything else that was being filmed. Uh, right. Great standout for her and highlighting her and Quark whenever they were. Right. There. Yeah, I'm trying to. I think it's, yeah, the episode Second Sight where we had a Bajoran woman that, um, that, uh, Quark was meeting with at the very beginning. 
Uh, no, it's not Second Sight. Am I wrong? It's it's the one where he uh, there's a beautiful Bajoran woman that's um, on the planet, and uh, he goes down at the very beginning, and and she tells them to go find the box in her uh, previous. She wasn't Cardassian. She was Bajoran. Oh, I'm so sorry, Bajoran. I'm sorry. Yeah, and that um, was that was Second Sight. And okay. That's the Odo episode where he's investigating the murder and thinks that Kira. From was responsible, past, yes. right, from the past. From, yeah, yeah, but that was a Bajoran woman right? Uh, in that one. Yeah, so, and then again, that episode, she was, you know, she comes off as a femme fatale, the classic film noir stereotype. And this woman, uh, in this episode, um, whose name is suddenly blanking on me, Natima, um, she is not that. She doesn't ever come off as a femme fatale, you know, the dangerous woman to stay away from. I actually, to be, to be very clear, I thought she didn't love Quark. I thought Quark was infatuated, but she was trying to, like, avoid him the whole time, but she was maybe gonna use him on some level. So when it turns turn out that she actually does love him, it was a little bit, for me, a little bit jarring, because I was like, oh, I mean, I, I, I guess I just can't imagine anyone actually loving Quark. <laughs> You know, yeah, the, the way the Ferengi treat their women um, is so different than, you know, how every other culture – well, I mean, they, they treat them as, as slaves effectively. So the fact that uh, yeah. Cork would actually have a romantic, passionate love relationship that was actually returned – um, he, he's, he comes off as one of those, you know, he, he has the Dabo girls, you know, he, he treats women as, as parts of the, this furniture almost. Uh, don't so, forget hollow sweets. Oh, don't yeah. Don't forget hollow sweets. I was trying to, but you had to bring them up. <laughs> I'm always uh, going to, always. <laughs> so yeah, it was, um, but yeah, Armin Shimmerman kills it and, um, the actress who plays, um, what is it? What's her name? The team, no, I mean, Lang, like the and the actress that plays her is Mary Crosby, who yes. is was quite famous for her role on, uh, I guess, a rather famous TV show called Dallas. Uh, you know, she had a role on that show way back in the day, but also because of two other things. One, that she is the daughter of Bing, Bing Crosby, Crosby. and... Uh. She is the aunt of none other than Denise Crosby, our Tasha Yar from Next Generation. Oh, wow. Yeah, so, you know, okay. they, they really love keeping family around in, yeah. uh, in Star Trek, which is, you know, great to see. But, yeah, she is Denise Crosby's aunt. So, uh, there yeah. you go. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, she... Um... Yeah, she acts through the makeup. Actually, this is, you know, this is an episode where a lot of acting through makeup occurs. We have not only Odo and Quark as our main cast, but we have um, Garrick, who he always has his eyes so big and a big smile on his face, and he looks like he's ready to just, you know, he'll smile while he's slowly... Like the Cheshire cat in space. Yes, he's going to slowly stab <laughs> you in your in your belly while he smiles at you, yeah. Um, and he he does a great job here, too, because they give him some great lines. Oh, uh, when he's, he's talking to. with... Mm -hmm. When he's talking with Quark in the in his um, in his tailor shop, the whole conversation is a double entendre for stay away from her. Um, she's dangerous. We, you know, don't, 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 don't go near, be able stay away from her. And Quark kind of gets it, but decides to ignore his warning and still, you know, goes after her. But the best line he has in the whole thing is right, right after he kills the other gull, uh, Quark says, I, you know, I'm going to get every Ferengi to come by from you. And he says, Oh, that makes it all worth it then. 
That was such a great line. He delivers it so perfectly. Um, who I, plays him? It's um, Andrew Robinson. Okay. Um, yeah. And he's been in a lot of stuff. He actually was in uh, the original Hellraiser movie as well. Uh, if you want to go back that far. Yeah. He was in that. And he was also in a Dirty Harry movie with Clint Eastwood oh. uh, as well. So he's he's been acting for a while. Right. But definitely... Uh, as Garrick, he is, I don't know, he, he is something else. I mean, yeah. I, I don't think I've ever encountered a, a character like Garrick in anything. And I think that since watching Deep Space Nine, I've seen attempts at having a character like him. But he is so, it's beyond just being nuanced. Like, there is something about Garrick that just, it sticks with you, no matter right. No matter what scene he's in, even right. the way that like when he when he first makes his grand appearance for Cisco, when the when the Cardassian ship shows up, right, and they're like, oh my gosh, like the ship seemingly came out of nowhere and it's bearing down on the station, and Cisco is you know he's ordering red alert, shields up, all that, and then out of nowhere we hear this little voice and he's stepping out of the shadow of the doorway and onto uh-huh. ops. And it's like a previously unknown door. Cause as far as I know, yeah. I've never seen anyone come out of that area before. And totally there he right. is. Yeah. And it was also great about that shot too, is that over his shoulder is the Cardassian warship on the screen. Mm-hmm. And like, as the Cardassian warship is like getting bigger on the screen, Garrick moves is also forward. walking into the scene. Yeah. It was yeah, a great moment. They, they did an excellent job with that. And I also yes. think that the next scene where Odo, not Odo, but Cisco and Garrick are talking in his office right. and, and he's just like, I'm just relaying a message, message. you yes. know? And, it's I, I even love the ending of it because he's because Cisco's like, well, you can deliver one back, and he tells him, you know, how he's going to meet their force with his own force and everything else. And Garrick starts to slink away, but then he stops and he's like, oh, do stop by the shop sometime. I have some right. suits that would look excellent on you. And to me, in that moment, like you could take that for whatever, but to me, I was like, he's threatening him. Like that was my oh, thought. Yes. He's threatening Cisco right. Oh, there. I thought I thought something about um, the dress that you know, Cork was going for, like there was going to be some like assassin's device in it. Like it would, you know, have a, I don't know, like it would tighten around her throat and mm-hmm. chuck her out or something. Like there'd be something there. Um, and you know, Garrick is such an interesting character. I mean, his, his whole, is he, or is he not exiled? Is he a spy? Is he here of his own volition? Is he actually, um, have some other purpose for being here? Like he still at the end of this episode is seemingly, unanswerable like for at the very end of the episode he's oh i i don't like being exiled you know being exiled sucks but he had a second gun and that gun that he used to kill the goal was set to to kill and he does it like immediately like you don't even see him pull it and he He doesn't he doesn't have a second gun he took the one that quark was holding remember oh is that what it was yes so because quark gets natima and her students out of the holding cell and he's escorting them to the um uh, the shuttle bay, basically, yeah. to get them out, and he's standing there at the doorway of the of of the, the opening hatch. Right. And he hits the button, and as he hits it, Garrick is staring, standing right there, Pops and, right and yeah. Quark is armed, but Garrick takes the phaser from him. 
Right. And he lowers the other one. And he's pointing the phaser, and that's when Gold Turan shows up. So conceivably, Gold Turan did not see him take Quark's uh, phaser. Right, and so when Gold Turan disarms him, he has no way of knowing that he's been he's got this other one all along. But yeah, right, and that's so, what it was. You're right, yeah. And so the the brilliance of that too is, I mean, if you want to kind of go down that rabbit hole or whatever, is that if there was some way for them to somehow trace back what weapon fired the shot that kills Gold Turan, <laughs> it wasn't Garrick's. Right, it wasn't yeah. Garrick's phaser. Yeah. So, and it wasn't Quark's either because it's the same phaser that Quark took from the team the one she shot him with. You're so, right. So, if anybody gets in trouble, really, it could be Natima because she was the one who had the phaser. <laughs> and she's already in trouble. She's and already, she's already in trouble. Yeah. Exactly. Wow. So, he, he expertly maneuvered himself into a position to where not only could he stop Raquel and Hug if he wanted to, but once he uncovered what the true intent of Gold Turan was, he could murder him and still not be held responsible. Right. Very inventive if you track all of it all the way through. Yeah. Yeah, he... Uh, he did a great job maneuvering yeah. himself into that situation. <laughs> yeah, we—he is a fascinating character, and um, you know, he opens up the episode with with uh, Bashir and the one scene we have of Bashir. Yeah, and they're talking about um, apparently some a story some... that he had, that they had been reading. Right. That uh, it, the way I always understood that was that. Garrick at some point had given a book or story or something to Bashir to read. Bashir right. read it and then he disagreed with the ending. And what right. we hear of the ending is basically that there is this Cardassian who has to choose between honoring his oil his loyalty to the state or his loyalty to his brother. Right. And he chose the state over his brother. Yeah, he had his brother executed. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And Bashir is like, but family and and uh and uh, Garrick is like, no, it, it was, well, the, the man was loyal to the state, and that was right. the right decision, which also ties into the very end of the episode, because when Quark exactly. uh, asks him, why did you let them go, he uh, they have a little conversation back and forth, and um, Garrick, and Garrick says, says, I love the state. Oh, I says, love yeah, Cardassia. I love Cardassia, which is why I did what I did, and, um, you know, he, he, he asks, oh, so Quark asks him, why did you let them go? Garrick responds, why did you let Natima go? And Natima, I love her. Oh, I love Cardassia. I don't understand why that doesn't make sense. Well, that's the thing about love. No one really understands it, do they? So according to Garrick, he loves Cardassia. But as we've just been discussing, what does that mean? Because there's the military, who he seems to be aligned with, who was in contact with him to go tell talk to Cisco. Is he in line with the the rebels that Natima and the other two are the, the at least the underground? Are he's he aligned with them? Is he his own free floating agent who just works in whatever situation he needs to be in? Yeah, he's still an enigma, even though he seemed to reveal more about himself in this episode. Yeah, and I would say that it's more, he certainly has an idea of what Cardassia is, or at least should be, and I think that he um, will cooperate only as long as it will allow him to honor that particular version of Cardassia, which right. is why he kind of held out really on turning over Raquel and Hogue. I think he, you know, he he was trying to figure out what Gold Turan's uh, true motives were. Right. And when he figured out that it wasn't going to be quite so simple as 
shoot these people and then you can go home. When he realized that, he's just like, well, there's just, there's no point. You're going to, not only are they going to die, but you're going to take all the credit. I'm going to be stuck here. And he also right. says, really to Golteran's face when they first meet, about basically just how worthless Golteran is. He feels like he's <laughs> just, he's not worthy of the title Go. And yes. he's just like, I don't, uh, you know, and seeing that, I think that also kind of angers him a bit, that he's in exile here, whether self-imposed or otherwise. Right. Meanwhile, this very unimaginative Cardassian right. is running around here with his own ship and crew and everything else. So I think he did it because there was some pleasure in kind of destroying this man who he just didn't feel like was worthy. Right. You know? Yeah. So. Once again, another nuanced character that we're slowly learning a bit more about. Do right. we ever really find out what Garrick's whole deal is? Who knows? But <laughs> for now, what we can say is that he definitely is keeping uh, he's keeping a lot of secrets. He's keeping a lot of that close to the vest, and it's played very well by Andrew Robinson. So um, kudos to him for that. Um, also, right. if you're interested in seeing more of the development of the Garrick Bashir relationship dynamic. There are several YouTube videos that you can watch in which the actors themselves, um, Alexander Sadig and Andrew Robinson reprise their characters and they continue their various conversations. And huh. there's ultimately an ending for that, that you can, um, was this like a deleted scene type thing or what? No, no, no. It's not filmed. This is this was they did this recently, like maybe like a year and a half ago. Really? And it's just it's just them on YouTube and somebody has written the script. I don't know if it's if they wrote it, if some fans wrote it, if there was some combination thereof, whatever it is. But there's a short series of videos that you can watch, and it's the two of them kind of continuing that relationship dynamic and huh. kind of filling in some spaces right but i would say don't watch those if you have not watched all deep space nine i was about to say (laughs) because if you do i feel like it will ruin the show for you oh yeah so so don't do it if you have not watched all of deep space nine okay otherwise you think of it as something to um look look forward to. to yeah when uh when it's all over now again the show is you know 30 years old so there i'm sure there many of you have already seen it or a good portion of it so have at it but for anyone else don't watch it until (laughs) after you've seen all of deep space nine i'll have to add this as an addendum to when we finish (laughs) hey yeah we'll have we'll have plenty more to discuss there's a lot of things out there that we're going to be able to get to so don't rush us gotcha got a lot to do a lot to uncover gotcha so standout performances who do you think gave the best performance? <laughs> now, we've talked about a lot of great characters in this episode. Uh, so, But who do you think overall topped it out, was the apex star here in this, gave us the most? Yeah, I mean, I think I've already said it. Armin Shimmerman, as we just talked about, he kills it. I think his best part of playing the love-lorn, you know, lover is in the scene where he they... Um, He's, he's saying he's going to give the cloaking device uh, in his private quarters as long as she stays. And she's all, um, like, she threatens to shoot him eventually and does. Like, he tells her, tell me that you don't love me anymore. And she says it. And he says, I heard a note of hesitation. Heard yeah, I heard that and hesitation. I, I didn't hear it, which is why I said I thought I didn't think that the she actually loved him. 
so anyway, when he, uh, I don't know, the whole, that whole scene is just great. Cause he, he just plays it like Cork is, he's, he fully means every bit of what he's saying. And like you, it was interesting cause he, he goes to Odo. We haven't talked about the Odo scene and he says, um, you know, I, I want you to free them because I want Cardassia to be opened and to be uh, a society where, you know, we can trade and that'd be good for business. And Odo's like, for the first time in my life, I don't believe you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't think it's about money. I think it's about her. It's about Natima. And Odo, or, I'm sorry, Cork admits it. He's like, yep, that's actually true. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's, Armin Shimmerman makes that believable because everything we've seen from the Ferengi is that they are money grubbers. And even his, you know, him saying that, like, I'll tell you about Nog and I'm sorry. Um, is it Nog? Yeah. His brother Nog. Um, I'll tell you everything that he's doing. I won't tell you what I'm doing. That was a great line. Like, and I promise I will tell you every dirty scheme that my brother Nog is involved in. <laughs> that was, that was great. That was yeah. a great moment. It was just, uh, um, uh, the breakdown there, you know, right. because he was just trying so hard to really appeal to Odo in this sense. And for right. a brief moment, it it works because it almost, you know, you see Odo leaning in and even you're leaning into a bit, you know, and he's like, you do this for me and I, there will be no more secrets. <laughs> I will tell you everything, every deal, every scheme, everything that my, my brother, brother Rob is involved in. <laughs> just like, <laughs> man, come on. Like, you, you were almost there. You exactly. almost had us. It was, it was great. And then um, there's the follow-up point where he says, you know, sometimes we're on opposite sides of things. That doesn't mean we can't be friends. You know, I've told you this, Odo, because I considered you as close to me as my brother. And Odo says, yeah. ha, I've seen yeah. how well you treat I've your brother. I've seen how you treat him. Yeah, it's great. They're, they're great. Like, again, uh, those two – yeah, those two together are great scenes. Odo and Cisco together, great scenes. I right, they do so well together, and um, all of them. And I mean, I think that would be a great episode to watch. Cisco, right. Odo, and Quark have to do like kind of a round robin with each other. Right, that would probably be I don't know, maybe even too much because gosh, they were they're just great. But I will agree with you. I think that Odo, uh, not Odo, but Quark, I think he does give a command performance here. He really sells it as this, you know, lovelorn Ferengi. I know there were elements of the the story of Casablanca, if you if you know it at all, where oh, were brought into yeah. this episode. You're for totally them. right. Yeah. And that, I, go ahead. Yeah. No, yeah. I just I think that I think that uh, Quark plays it well. He does such a great job with it. And, uh, yeah, her leaving at the end, very Casablanca. You know, they get their final kiss, and then you, she departs. And maybe You're 100% right. <laughs> this episode is almost a direct ripoff of Casablanca, but it makes it unique because, you know, Quark is not – what's his name from Humphrey Casablanca? Yeah, he is Bogart not character. at all. Um, man, you're totally right. I didn't think about it until you said it. But, yeah, that – that makes a lot of sense. I mean, do we then say that the episode loses a notch in its belt? You know, or not in its belt? What am I saying? It it loses. It kind of comes down a bit because it's kind of a ripoff. Or is no, that no, not at no? all? Because I think that they added enough unique things to it. Plus, what we know about the characters before this episode comes out, I think that it still plays very well. Yeah, and, I mean, there's plenty of stories out there that are always going to be told and retold, and you know, Casablanca is just one of them. And I'm sure that if we analyzed Casablanca enough, we'd find that. 
it was probably a retelling of something else. Probably yeah. Shakespeare and so. Oh yeah, some and Shakespeare's relation, known know. to have stolen all his stories. Yeah, so, yeah, you know. So I mean, there's just there's just this constant notion in in human storytelling that we we do kind of recycled stories. Yeah, you know? and so, imitation is the most sincere form of flattery. So. I think that's something <laughs> that people say because they can't come up with a new story. <laughs> So I don't I don't really agree with that statement. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, all right. But yeah, that's how I've always felt. Whenever somebody has said yeah. that, I was like, yeah, that's because you. That's your way of patting yourself on the back for not being original. Right. So, Man, you are no. totally right. This episode is like a it is like Deep Space Nine's version of Casablanca. You're totally right. My goodness. Which is huh. again, which is fine to me because I don't necessarily mind certain stories being retold if you can add a little something to them. If it's going to be a shot for shot. Remake, oh yeah. Then, then you might as well just call it that Casablanca in space. Well, I, at Don't no point in this a... episode when I was watching it did I make the connection. It was only after you said it that I see it. So yeah. I was able to enjoy the episode beforehand. Whereas if I watched the movie Avatar, I'm like, I've already seen Pocahontas. I've already seen uh <laughs> already seen what all movie those movie. movies are like where the you know the white man goes and gets becomes native and saves the native people from the evil white men. Like that story's been done a million times. Um, but this one was a, it was a was a, a twist on that Casablanca tale, uh, but not so much that it was a straight up ripoff. Yeah, yeah, well. yeah. Well, then, of course, we have to come to lackluster performances. Who did we just not need? Now, and the re- reason I say it that way, who did we not need? Perry, you know are, what I'm going to say. I know, but see, the thing is. There are so many characters that we see very little of in this episode. So yes. saying that they didn't give a great performance isn't fair because they just they just weren't involved. So for well, the Bashir sake of this, had a scene. Bashir O'Brien had a scene. Had a scene. Yes. Kira had a scene, but who didn't have a scene? <laughs> who got her episode last week? And that was too All much I, for the show to handle. It. That was it. They gave <laughs> us too much, and they said, "Okay, we got to dial it back." And so they yeah. said, "None." Well, we at least get to see her. Briefly, did we? She, she's I... in the opening. She's standing behind Kira when uh, they first scan and, and locate Natima's damaged ship. She is there, but she does not say a word the entire episode. I swear. So, like, okay, which, so I'll which I, before you say anything else, I'm just going to say on that point, I feel like it's a failing because this is a very Quark central episode, and right. we know that Dax and Quark have a special bond relationship whatever right and the fact yeah. that he's going through this whole romantic turmoil and does not at all hear from dax seemed like a bit of a failing exactly. uh, for the story she could have offered him a little bit more context a little bit more color to the story and right. the fact that we don't hear from her in this does stand out as a mistake yes so they, that should have happened that should have happened you know i it's <laughs> While I was watching the episode, I never missed Dax the whole time. Like it wasn't like I was looking for her because the story was good enough as as on its own. But as soon as you're asking me like who's the character we need to talk about, like we haven't needed their performance wasn't up to par. I was like, the, wait a minute, the spotted elephant in the room. <laughs> exactly. Oh gosh, man. You know it's it's so funny because you're right. You know she could have had some input in this episode. Yeah. All of the scenes with Odo. We could have switched out Odo for her, and actually that might have solved some of the whole issues of, you know, arresting them. Maybe it's something they weren't arrested, but something else happens that, you know, Dax could be the one that the scenes with Odo were replaced right. with. Right, but fixing, the scenes... the, fixing the cloaking device. Oh, yeah, giving, yeah. Them, giving them an out, you know, because O'Brien couldn't do it, you know, but Dax right. being the sympathetic 
very worldly. She's lived multiple lifetimes and understands love better than anyone else. Using Dude. her expertise to do this thing would have made great. a lot of sense. Right. It would have been a great tie-in oh. and development for both characters. Yeah. And, I mean, and it, or, or that how, about, how about some... this? How about this? How about that she's the one that breaks them out of the jail? Like Odo is the hardcore. I'm sorry. This is what the you know. I, I can't. Just I do let this for out. justice instead or, of getting that. Yeah, I mean, I like that explanation. I think it certainly fits with his character on some level. But again, the, we don't see the ramifications. It's not like he comes up with a plan to like cover for why they escaped or something. Right. But if it was that Dax, you know, had, had science tech tricked. Their exactly. way out and onto the uh, ship before anybody noticed. This would have been yeah, a perfect two-part perfect episode. Solution. Dax mm-hmm. could have been a part of why this was a two-part episode. We could Absolutely. have had her included. Absolutely. We could have had her have a moment with Matima and how isn't Quark actually much deeper right. and people don't helping, appreciate him. And, yes, helping the Tima to realize she does still have right. feelings for and Quark. S- Speaking of yeah. which, I forgot to mention, you know, Natima liked Quark because Quark was giving food to the to the Bajorans um, when they were during the occupation. Yeah, I mean, mm-hmm. he says, "Well, I was doing it for money, so you should have known better." And she goes, "I agree, but you know, it, it's like there maybe maybe there is something more to 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 Quark." And again, Dax could have been that insight for us. Ah. Why, Perry, so I'm gonna why? I, I'm gonna blame it on the earthquake. They probably were all, you know, <laughs> too frazzled to really think through their storyline that they were putting together. No. And I'm gonna I'll give it to them on No, this man, one. you are really trying to make them have a reason. I am. I'm trying to be an apologist for these morons for not yes. giving us more Dax. <sighs> uh but it's I, I shouldn't say that. You don't want to call anybody a moron. They they had their reasons, I'm sure. But yeah, they're Still, lazy. They yeah, couldn't, they couldn't. They yeah. created a great character, but they it, couldn't put her in there. Anywhere. Now, granted, we are saying this with thirty years of hindsight. Obviously, right. we we get to watch it and rewatch it and be like, "This yeah. is how it should have been," or whatever. But I, you know, but still, I mean, if you ha- if, excuse me, if you assemble an ensemble cast, use your ensemble cast. Right. Don't. Let them play to their strengths. And again, you could say that because this is season two, maybe they don't know what all those are yet. But one thing that they have definitely made a part of Dax's persona is that she has a way of kind of getting to the heart of matters and not just looking at things just as a Starfleet officer. So that's definitely what a play to. And again, they've already developed the friendship with her and Quark. Right. She plays Tongo with the Ferengi into the wee hours of the night. You know, right. she's she's this very dynamic character. And it's like, so if you, you work so hard to establish that, and then when you had a, another prime moment, didn't have to be much, right. but you could have given us a couple of scenes where she kind of helps both Quark and the team see that there's more to them than just being a Cardassian and just being a Ferengi, you know? Right. That could have been a great thing for that character, and right. they didn't do it. So, yeah. yeah, missed opportunity there. Definitely a mistake. Yeah. Oh, gosh. Oh, I mean, <laughs> uh, all right. If I said it once, I've said it a million times, but we need more Dax. So I'll just let it go. Just We're going to keep saying it. And I mean, <laughs> thankfully, I know that there is more down the road. But still, yeah. I always feel like even now, you know, having watched this, this series several times, I always feel like we didn't get enough. Dax, not really. Right. Um, but hey, you know that's kind of the the great thing again of hindsight and of enjoying shows with characters like this. Is you always feel like 
they were done so well, you wish there could have been more. Right. So there you go. Yeah. Yeah. Well, David, final <sighs> thoughts on this wonderful episode. Yeah, it was a fun season. one. Yeah, we got insights into a lot of characters, Garrick in particular. Um, yeah. Um, gosh, it makes me just think that, you know, so many episodes, If it's just too bad we have to make it 40 minutes long. So many episodes could really benefit from a little extra time here or there. Um, but yeah, got to get what you or you got to do what you got to do to make it fit into the time slot. So I get it. And they uh, even if they did borrow Casablanca's uh, overall plot, at least some of the some of the themes there, uh, it still really worked. And uh, again, Armin Shimmerman. I mean, gosh, Perry, I don't know. Is he the best actor on the show? Am I going to are we going to go there or, I mean, or is that that's I'm going to definitely say that he was leaps and bounds above the other actors when they first right. started. But yeah. I'm going to give. The reason I give him a lot of credit, though, is because he had been playing a car a, a, a Ferengi, yeah, for a, for long time. a while. He right. started Since... off in, I believe, season two of Next Generation. Was it and... two or one? I thought it was one, but is it two of TNG? No, it'd be season one because Tasha Yar was still there, so it'd been season one. So he was way back, you know, yeah. playing Ferengi and being informed on this character and everything else. And he, right. you know, he kind of brought that forward. So uh, he definitely had more of a foundation to build his yeah. character on than probably anybody else. So maybe that's why he feels so fully fleshed out so early on. Right. So, um, but I think that as the show continues, while I don't feel Armin Shimmerman was in any way diminished, I feel the other characters just really, they, the actors start to understand them more. So once that happens, once that really clicks for them, um, and they're able to kind of, I guess, come out of their shell, right? Being timid about the character a bit. Right. They also get better. Right. Also get a lot better. So, right. Yeah. So we'll gotcha. see how we feel when we're comparing season two Quark to season six <laughs> Quark and season six Cisco and season six everybody. So, yeah. 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 But all right. Um as always, guys, this is the Fire Caves, a Star Trek Deep Space Nine podcast. I did not say it at the beginning, but I will say it now. Please like, subscribe, follow all those things for us on the various uh, social medias. We're active on Facebook and Twitter probably the most, but we're branching out. And you can, of course, find our podcast anywhere you listen to podcasts. I happen to do it on Spotify. So tune in and let us know what you think, and we will do our best to keep it trek central here for you all right so until next time take care of yourselves thanks guys <laughs>